The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. A couple of reminders before we jump into the text this morning. We have got backpack buddies, still have about 80 backpacks that we need help with for kids in our community that get a backpack, school supplies every year. Uh, we do great to make sure that kids in local schools have the supplies they need. So we got about 80 more of those. Take great opportunity to go on our website and I believe you can go to the hub and get information about how to give to Backpack Buddies. And then also one of our great partner ministries, Foster Love, Bell County does Christmas in July. I saw the tree out there and I thought it was celebrating me turning 49 in August, but it was not. Christmas in July for Foster Love is a great chance to love folks in our community. Foster Love has this incredible ministry, both to children in vulnerable situations and to caseworkers. So they still have lots of opportunity to give. You can see a QR code on the tree, uh, use your phone and find out how to give to them. Today is the last opportunity you have to give. So make sure you make the most of that. Well, we're almost done with the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're talking about who can you trust? Now, I'll give you the punchline. The answer is Jesus, okay? You can all go home now. No. But it's interesting when people start talking in the name of God, and sometimes people who speak in the name of God, sometimes people who don't speak in the name of God, have a case of a sort of mistaken identity. They think they're someone they're not. There's a guy named Stephen Vincenzi. He wrote a uh, a novel in 1983 called The Innocent Millionaire. And one of the characters in The Innocent Millionaire is this hitman. He's a mafia hitman named Baglione. And he has made nine kills and is on his way to maybe making some more. But Baglione is really bothered that people think of him as a killer. And the reason is he killed nine people, but there were lots of other people he thought about killing and he didn't, right? So Baglione basically says this, people misunderstand who I am. I spared hundreds of lives. I'm a man of extraordinary restraint. It's not just contract killers that deceive themselves, though. We all do. It's far easier to think of someone else as walking in self-deception than ourselves. And this is the problem the Pharisees have, that Jesus is addressing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. There are Pharisees and scribes who would have heard of this rabbi from Galilee. They've come out to listen, they're in the crowd, and they don't recognize their own misunderstanding about who they are. They've built this kingdom of external righteousness, of rule following to please God. But in their hearts, they've got a sin problem that they're not addressing. The biggest problem they have, though, is that they don't recognize the rabbi Jesus as the Messiah Jesus. And so into this crowd, Jesus speaks and he says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the disease-free tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawless or you, lawlessness, or you workers of iniquity. Can we pray? God, we want to understand truth, and we confess and recognize that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He, he said to his disciples the night before he died, he prayed to you that you would sanctify them in the truth that your word is truth. So God, as we look in your word, Father, help us to distinguish between those even in our day who would teach us things that are not from you versus those who would teach us things that are. And help us ultimately look to Jesus as our authority and our Lord and our Savior and our treasure. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well. God has spoken into the world, and it is an amazing thing that God communicates. And it's no shock if there's a God that communicates that some would say they communicate in his name, and some would do that with false pretense, whether they know it or not. And it's a little bit odd, honestly, just standing up here, speaking the word and saying, hey, people tell you truth about God, and sometimes they're not always telling you the truth, because that could be me. So I want to say from the outset as we talk about false teachers, well, what are you saying, Chase, that we ought to trust you and Dave and Tim? Absolutely not. Test everything we say according to the scripture. Trust Jesus and his apostles. Look to the word and the word only. That's what Jesus is really going to declare that people ought to look to him. There are voices in the first century and there are voices in the 21st century calling from everywhere. We don't call them all prophets but they do all seem to tell us this is the way to the good life. That's what the Pharisees were telling the Jews. You want the good life. You follow us. You follow our rules. But Jesus is saying something different in the Sermon on the Mount, but also really throughout Matthew, he's declaring to Israel, I'm the God of Moses. They were the people of Moses. They were this Exodus people. And Matthew is building a case in chapters two through seven, but really you see it throughout Matthew, that Jesus is not just Moses 2.0, not just the prophet who would arise after Moses, but he's in fact the God of Moses. And he sets it up really in chapter two when Jesus flees to Egypt and then goes to Nazareth and we hear this quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Just like Israel escaped Egypt, Jesus did too. And then in chapter three, Jesus is baptized and he passes through the waters just like Israel passed through the Red Sea. And in chapter four, for 40 days, Jesus goes through the wilderness and is dependent on the Spirit just as Israel goes through the wilderness and they see God's provision. And in chapter five, he goes up on the mountain and gives them the law, just like Moses went up on the mountain and came down from the law. But it's a little different because Moses received the law, but Jesus doesn't receive the law, he speaks the law. Prophets in the Old Testament would speak for God and they would say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus 
doesn't say, I know you've heard it was written this, but thus saith the Lord. He says, you've heard it was written, but I say to you, I've come to fulfill the law. He's not receiving it. He's giving it. When Jesus walks on water later in Matthew, he tells his disciples, do not be afraid for I am. He's the God of Exodus 3. He shows them his glory as God chose Moses in Exodus 33 and 34, the transfiguration alludes to Deuteronomy 18, this prophet that would arise. And at the end of our text today, I believe Jesus makes a statement and it almost seems like it's off the cuff. He hasn't announced it yet. And I believe he's calling himself the God of Moses. And you gotta understand that anybody who said that in Israel that's the sort of thing that would make people pick up stones and start throwing rocks at you till they killed you. He's making a very exclusive claim about who he is and he's setting himself apart from the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's saying, you wanna know a false prophet? You look at the fruit. A bad tree is not gonna bear good fruit. These people were, were putting burdens on the people of Israel that they couldn't bear. They were demanding a law obedience that they couldn't give. And in addition, they were overcharging them for sacrifices. They were making it hard to be right with God. Among a people, God had called his treasured possession. So how do you look at a false prophet versus a true prophet back then? And how do you do it today? Well, I think you look at the fruit. I think you look at the fruit so that's what Jesus said to do. Well, what would be the fruit? The fruit would be their life and their teaching. And I want to tell you why I think that's true. Because Paul, one of Jesus' followers who had been one of those false teachers, he had been one of those guys. This is the most amazing thing about the love of God. He was persecuting the church. He was telling people not to follow Christ, to follow the law, holding the cloaks of those who killed a witness for Jesus and he comes to know Christ. His life is transformed. He is changed. And this young man, Timothy, that Paul mentors, trains, and disciples, who's a young pastor, Paul tells him in a letter he wrote to him, the Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith. They'll devote themselves to deceitful spirits, the teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, They'll forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received. And they're gonna be false teachers, but Paul tells Timothy at the end of chapter four, he says, keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Or another way he says that keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Your life and your teaching will be the fruit of what God is doing in you for by so doing, Paul says, you'll save yourself and your hearers. Now, false prophets were not new to the first century. They had been around as long as God's people had been around. Moses warned the people, here's how you test to see if there's a false prophet or a true prophet. If a prophet prophesies something and it comes true, 100% of the time, that's a true prophet. If he prophesies something and it doesn't come true, that was not true from the Lord. The people who are supposed to be shepherding Israel are living duplicitous lives and so Amos calls them out. They're not really shepherds at all. They're false prophets. Peter says it's going to happen 
in his day as well. Second Peter in verse or in chapter two, verse one, he says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves destruction. Now, Peter goes on to say this. He says, many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Well, how do you figure out who a false teacher is? Because Timothy said they're gonna forbid marriage. They're gonna be really, really legalistic. Peter says their sensuality is gonna be evident. Maybe they're really, really licentious. How do you judge a false prophet? It's through their lives and through their teaching because the fruit is an outworking of the root. So there's some really general things and it just kind of blows my mind when you look at life and teaching how we don't always pay attention. And I think about even yesterday, someone sent me a clip of, of a politician who was at a prayer breakfast. It was, I think this week or maybe last week and, and the person says, I woke up this morning and my fiance is just pulling me over closer wanting to spend some time together. And I said, you'll have to wait till tonight. I've got to get to a prayer breakfast. I'm going to say you can't trust that person to speak for God. I, I think about this guy when I was a kid who had this great following and basically he would say this, he would say, if, if you want to follow God's way, you got to do exactly what I tell you to do. And if your church tells you different, don't listen to your church Listen to me, and I'll tell you how to raise your kids, and he worked through fear and through illegalism, and he, and he said, if you got CDs that have rock and roll sound, burn your CDs, and I was pretty sure God did not want me to get rid of Chuck Berry, if I could be honest. <laughs> but then I, I think about a, the problem with this guy. Here's, here's the thing. His teaching's a little off, but it's really, really compelling but then he's sleeping with 14-year-old girls. Oh, you probably don't need to listen to that guy. What gave that away? Now, I think about a lady even this last year, though, who's just saying, hey, I know the Bible says but, and just utterly abandons a biblical sexual ethic. Leaves her husband, says, if you want to ward off evil spirits, burn some sage. They're off-center, they're missing the mark. One takes the gospel and twists it into a legalism, the other never actually even gets to the gospel. They're not recognizing Jesus as Lord and they're not submitting themselves to the authority of scripture. Hear me, I get the idea of music mattering. I think it's really unfortunate if you don't listen to Johnny Cash. I just don't think you'll go to hell for not listening to him. There's a different standard. You look at their life. How is a man who speaks for God with his wife? See, we look at people and we're enamored by gifts and we ignore character. If a man's harsh with his wife, the scripture's clear. His prayer is hindered. God will not listen to him and you shouldn't either. How is he with his kids? 
How is he with his team? The Lord's bondservant must be gentle. Is he given over to just utter freedom where holiness just doesn't matter at all? Or is there a legalism where it's my way or the highway? You can't listen to that man or that lady. They get off center. They're not primarily about Jesus and they're not under the authority of the word. Well, how do we know this? Because Jesus tells us this in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples very shortly before his death, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said to you, he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. Jesus said the spirit of truth is gonna come and when he guides you into truth, it will be truth that glorifies, magnifies, exalts and recognizes Jesus as Lord. Jesus places himself at the center of the biblical storyline. He does the same thing when he raises from the dead. Luke 24, he's walking with two disciples to Emmaus and it says he he began to teach them all the prophets said concerning himself, that the Christ must suffer and die and rise from the dead. If people reject Jesus, if they reject the authority of scripture, and I, I wanna be clear, when I say reject the authority of scripture, that doesn't always mean move to the left. Sometimes it can mean that they believe their interpretation is the only way that They've got a hold on the scripture. Paul warns Timothy. Again, in 2 Timothy 3, understand this, in the last days there will be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, swollen, reckless with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Avoid such people. Their lives and their teaching are the fruit that we look for. When Paul is telling Timothy about all these difficulties, I kept waiting for him to say, and it's gonna be 107 degrees 50 days in a row in Texas. Surely the end is near. Paul says, that, listen, this isn't new. This happened throughout Israel's history. And he names these two guys. He says, Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth. They're corrupted in mind. They're disqualified regarding the faith. Listen, there's an internet guy right now, uber popular. but he's disqualified according to the faith. He's abandoned his family and he's got lots of followers because he screams on the internet. Don't listen to that guy. His very life is rejecting the authority of scripture. 
If someone's going to teach, they have to be above reproach. Yes, they have to be able to teach, but they have to love people and be faithful to Jesus and his gospel. How do you recognize a bad tree? They reject the authority of Scripture. They reject the local church. Again, what do you mean, Chase? We got to listen to you? No. No, if I'm not submitting to our elders, if I'm not under their authority, you should never, ever Listen to me. Listen, the church and its evident is broken as she is beautiful. But the church is the means Jesus has chosen to spread the gospel in the world. False prophets move beyond or they don't get to the gospel and they make themselves the supreme authority. And Jesus says that fruit is messed up. There's a wicked root at the heart of it. And I want you, my people, to be able to distinguish between the wicked and the righteous, between a false prophet and a true prophet. Because one day he's going to. One day Jesus is going to do that and it'll be utterly clear. Because yes, there's the test of their lives and yes, there's the test of their teaching, but the ultimate test is what do they do with Jesus, which would have been revolutionary thinking for these people. But Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Here's how you know the wicked from the righteous. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of my Father, he is making a separation. And, and really what he's showing is from Moses to Malachi, the prophets have been pointing to him. From Moses, the first book of the Old, Test- Old Testament, to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And for 400 years, his, God's people had been hearing out loud the book of Malachi because there was not another prophet after him. They had been reading the book of Malachi until John the Baptist came on the scene, the forerunner who declared the way of the Lord. Listen to how Malachi ends. Then those who feared the Lord, Malachi 3.16, they spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. I've got to tell you, our message is not about this, and I don't have the time to talk about this, but verse 16 just blows my mind. They spoke, and the Lord paid attention, and there was a book written of those who esteemed the name of the Lord, I guess, versus those who just didn't. He says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son and serves him. He's using Exodus language in Exodus 19. God says to Israel, you'll be my treasured possession of all the peoples in the earth. Peter says it in 1 Peter 2 of the church that we're God's treasured possession. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And then Malachi begins to write about the great and terrible day of the Lord, just as Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 7, 21. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The fruit will be burned up and the root will be burned up. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from a stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I act, says the Lord of hosts. And the most frightening thing in the world that we need to pay attention to is the Pharisees thought they would be the ones trampling down wicked Rome. And Jesus is saying, no, you're the wicked ones who will depart. You are the workers of lawlessness. And then Malachi says, remember the law of my servant Moses. He says, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And I will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. He says, I'm going to. I'm gonna make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked and the righteous are those. What Jesus is gonna say is the righteous are those who do the will of my Father. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus says a lot of things in this verse that are just amazing. So I'd like us to talk about a little bit of what he says. First, he says, on that day, and he's declaring he is the judge that's coming on that day. He's the one who will distinguish between the wicked and the righteous. The, the second thing is that Jesus is saying he's the only way. He's the only way. Now, when you think about false teachers, you have all kinds of people, the kinds who say you follow my legalism and my way and I'm the authority and everybody has to listen to me. You have people who will proclaim Jesus but abandon the truth of the gospel and the Jesus they're naming is unrecognizable in scripture. And then you have people who will say, yeah, Jesus is the way and he's the only way. And so what that means is that everyone will be saved. The doctrine is universalism, that everyone's going to heaven, that that God's love is so great. And I mean, they, they do it kind of with logic, uh, but it's a broken Well, Obviously, God loves people more than we do. Surely he would never, ever let someone perish forever. I hear the argument. I understand the argument. I understand the compassion it comes from, but I also understand that it just ignores the holiness of God. It just ignores that Christ was brutally murdered. It ignores the fact that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that in him we might become the righteousness of God and it ignores the teaching of Jesus. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The universalist says everyone who says, Lord, Lord, and even those who don't will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scripture has to be our standard. But then there's this other thing. There are three things in verses 21, 22, 23 
that I think matters so much if we're to understand who we can trust. And number one, it's that Jesus tells them who he is. Number two, he tells them what he's looking for in his people. And number three, he tells them intimacy is the key. He says, not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Well, it's pretty fascinating to me because he said, I've come to fulfill the law. He said, I I say unto you, but he hasn't just explicitly said, hey, I'm God. Do you guys try? I'm God. And just in the middle of his sermon, he's preaching this 16-minute sermon, and he just drops this bomb. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But I'm he. I'm the Lord, Lord. And I was, I was thinking about this this Monday morning, and it was somewhere between 5.15 and 5.30, and I know that because I was still on my first cup of coffee. And I'm praying about this text and something comes to mind and I don't know why it came to mind, but I started chasing it down. Then I started calling people in our church that I know, know the word. I emailed professors about it and I said, hey, I'm seeing something here that I've not noticed before. And it's this phrase, Lord, Lord. Jesus says it twice in this text. There are a couple of other recordings of it where Jesus says it, but you don't find it anywhere else in scripture except one place. You find things like the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. You find Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Jireh, God our provider, but you don't find Lord, Lord, except in the Old Testament that I, I believe that these people would have been reading. When Moses has the Ten Commandments, and he says to God, I want to see your glory. And God says, no one can see my face and live. But I'll hide you in a rock, and I'll pass by you, and I will declare my name to you. And so in Exodus 34, Moses takes the tablets, and he goes up on the mountain. And Exodus 34, 5 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So Jesus says, Lord, Lord, and we see the Lord, the Lord, and you go, well, that's close, but it's not actually the same. Except these first century readers and these first century rabbis and these scribes and Pharisees, I believe would have been reading the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that 70 rabbis made. And in the Septuagint, Exodus 34, 6 says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Jesus is warning of judgment that's coming. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, That's my name. I'm this guy. I'm not Moses 2.0. I'm the God of Moses. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he's going to display his slowness to anger by dying for people. And as they mock him saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But not everybody who says it Not everybody who says it is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but those who do the will of my Father. 
those who do the will of my Father, well, what is the will of my Father? It's to hear His words and act upon Him. It's to follow His teaching. It's to pursue Jesus. This is the will of my Father that you believe Him who sent me. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, the two things that kind of shocked me the most is that anybody would, would read this text and go, yeah, I'm gonna embrace universalism, even though Jesus says not everyone. But the other is this idea that someone might stand before God and read off their good works to him. Hey, this is the God who weighs the mountains in a balance. He holds the waters in his hand. The clouds are just the dust of his feet, and those are the outer reaches of his greatness. Hey, God, I don't know if you remember, but I led a Bible study for 30 years, and I mean, it was, it was good. My mom listened online and loved it, right? Can you imagine? And Jesus says it's going to happen. Many, surely nobody in Central Texas would do that, right? Many are going to say to me, hey, God, don't you remember how amazing I was for you? And may it never be said of us. He says he's the Lord, Lord, and he's looking for people not who are amazed at their own spiritual abilities, but who are enamored with him, so much so that they do the will of the Father. They're the new covenant people for whom the law has been written on their hearts. Their lives are being changed by the Spirit. They're submitting to the Word. They're in community together. Not everyone who says to me, he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or you workers of iniquity. Transgression is breaking the law. The word here is iniquity, it's a twisted root. That's the picture, that deep within them, they're twisted, they're not straight, that they're workers of wicked ways. They might have the 10 commandments down externally, they might be doing everything right, they might not be committing adultery, they might not be stealing, they might not be murdering, they might love their neighbors, but not their enemies. He says to many of them, I'm gonna say to Apart from me, for I never knew you. And that's the real key, is, is this person who's teaching, or am I as a believer, intimate with Jesus? He says, I never knew you. It's not head knowledge. It's the same idea as, as we read in the first chapters of Genesis. Adam knew his wife, Eve. They were intimate with one another. They were together. The, the way theologians might say it today is they didn't have union with Christ. They weren't in Christ. And this is not just a test of goodness. It's the test of eternal life. Jesus prayed to the Father the night before he died. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's not just a question of teaching, it's a question of life. 
do you have intimacy with him? Is he the one you can trust? Because as we know him and make him known, he promises to be with us. And I want us to see this, that there's this warning for those who would teach but not have their lives transformed by his grace. I never knew you, but there's also a promise at the end of Matthew. For those who would go and make disciples and the promise is that he's with us. One of those who went and made disciples in a really hard place was a guy named John Payton. And he started with his first wife, Mary. Mary had a baby in the New Hebrides, a land that was filled with cannibals. And Mary died and 36, year, or 36 days later, the baby died. And the place, the field that they were sharing the gospel in was so hard that John Payton used to sleep on their graves so that cannibals wouldn't steal their bodies. He eventually went back to Scotland to raise support for his ministry and there he met his second wife, Maggie. And John and Maggie had 10 kids. They had six in the New Hebrides. Four of their kids died before adulthood in the New Hebrides. Here's what John Payton said. He knew it was about knowing Jesus. Trials and hairbreadth escapes only strengthen my faith and they nerved me for more to follow. They trod swiftly enough upon each other's heels without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my Lord and Savior. Nothing in the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. His words, lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end, became to me so real, it wouldn't have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. It is the sober truth that I had my nearest and most intimate glimpse of the presence of my Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. See, the Pharisees wanted the finest places at the banquets. They wanted to be known and they wanted their names magnified. John Payton and many, many like him just wanted to know that Jesus was with them, even in the midst of their suffering. John Payton said, this is strength. This is peace to feel in entering on every day that all its duties and trials have been committed to the Lord Jesus. That come what may, he will use us for his own glory and for our real good. See, there's a warning here. I never knew you. But then there's a promise to those who give their lives to him. He says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's his call to the church to those who would speak the truth about Jesus. And he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. He is the one that we can trust. Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death and resurrection all speak to this beautiful reality that we can trust him, both with our lives and the here and now. As believers, we can trust 
him as the one who is transforming us through suffering to be like himself. But it's not just in the here and now that we can trust him. We can trust him for eternal life. And you, you might not have fully come to understand and embrace that, and today you can. It's not about the miracles that we can do or the works that we can do. It's about the work that Jesus has done when he lived and died and rose from the dead that we might have life in his name, that he might know us and that we might know him and make him known. Would you pray with me? God, I pray for people in this room that maybe today, God, whether they've had lots of days with external works of righteousness or whether they haven't had very many at all, but today that your spirit would just pull on them and draw them to know you, to know that forgiveness only comes through you, to know that life that's truly life comes through you, that transformation comes through you, that there's no power in anything that I or any other person that stands on this stage says, except we speak it and surrender to you and for your glory. So God, would you have your way with us and would you make us a people who are transformed deep, deep within ourselves, God? Not just behavior modification, like the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, God, would you change us in our hearts? And then would you change our lives and our teaching? And would you make us a people who long to declare your glory? Would you make us a people who know that you're with us, God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.